How many of you guys are at the party Friday night? Such a good time. We're going to keep doing those kind of parties off-site over there at Vail Ranch. Beautiful and amazing time. Uh, over the years here, being a pastor now at this church for about 17 years, I have had lots of meetings with people to deal with stuff, financial decisions, relationship decisions, stupid things that somebody in their life has done, stupid things that they have done, and all the craziness of this. And I have figured out that basically you can boil down 90% of the stupid wrong things we do to this one truth right here. We're all recovering from seventh grade. <laughs> seventh grade, because remember like, you know, and in seventh grade, I remember when I first started working with middle school kids, there was this idea, there's this thing called, with seventh graders, they have like this, what's called the imaginary audience in middle school. This, people are looking at me and people are evaluating me and what do people think of me and all that, worrying about all that. And what I've discovered is, is that, um, and it's kind of way as I can say this, we've never recovered from that. Because so many of the decisions that you and I have made, even as adults, mature, grown up, thinking adults, has often been, what are people going to think about this? What are they going to think of me? How are they going to evaluate me? It's, it's America in 2021 today. Uh, is a lot of what we do is, is, is by that. And so when we do that, what do people think of me? We will, we will try to pretend that things are better than they really are. And you'll see the title that's on top of the note sheet that's, that's there. Uh, if you have a, they gave you a program on the way in. There's a, a note sheet there that's somewhere in the back or front of that somewhere that you can jot some things down if you want to as well. We're in this series, episode 15 today, the book of Acts, taking a look at how the church got started. It goes, it starts in Jerusalem here. Some good things are happening. Some miracles happen. They get in trouble with legal authorities. Things are going great. But because there's, it's economic difficult times, we talked about it uh, last week, that, man, people were selling stuff. And not just like, I mean, they're selling whole real estate holdings that they had, bringing that money to the church and then giving it to the church so they could church would know, okay, who are the people that are hurting? Who are the people that need this the most right now? And we're gonna pick it up. If, uh, if you have a Bible, find Acts chapter four. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles underneath the chairs around you. You can use your mobile device and get on your Bible app or even just uh, Crosspoint Guest, I think, is our free Wi-Fi. And just Google uh, Acts chapter 4, Acts 4. We use the NLT or the New Living Translation, but whatever one comes up there, you'll be able to follow along just fine. Everybody's selling everything. And it says, for instance, verse 36. There was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles. And Barnabas, this is the first time we meet him, he now has become very, very prominent in the book of Acts. He's just a dude in the church, obviously has some level of being independently wealthy. He has fields that he can set by and sell and bring the money and all that kind of thing. Uh, we're going to find out that he's going to be uh, pivotal in the gospel moving out of Jerusalem and now getting to like the Judea Samaria to the region. And then ultimately, he's one of the guys that helps uh, Saul, who is persecuting the church, be accepted by the church. And he's the guy that kind of accompanies him, probably helps fund a lot of what uh, the initial missionary journeys that Paul was doing. But he gains a lot of popularity. When, when they give you a new name in your deal, in your business, 
in your school, if all of a sudden you're no longer just Mike, but you're Mike, son of whatever, and I wonder, they're on your note sheet today. You're not, I'm not going to give you the blank to fill in, but what would people say about you, if, about your nickname? Son of, no, no, not that one. <laughs> Some of you are going, that's exactly what they'd say about me. Son of, and for Barnabas, son of encouragement, or daughter of, son, daughter of, what would be your nickname, and what, here's the exercise to do. It's on the inside. There's some summer devotional things that we're giving you guys to do during the week for some quiet time just to dive a little deeper into this. But uh, one of the questions there is, what do you want your nickname to be? And whatever you want your nickname to be, start working at that. And then maybe more, okay, what would people actually say is my nickname? Son of, daughter of, what would they fill the blank in there that would kind of define kind of who I am? But he's just going and blowing Barnabas. The church is doing great right now. It says there's vibrancy, excitement, but chapter five. And in the early days, the the Bible was never written uh, when it was first written with chapters and verses all broken up in chunks and sections. They put these in just a few hundred years ago so we could kind of navigate around and figure out, okay, where is that? And be able to find it and, and get there all together. So Barnabas is doing great, amazing, church is going great, amazing, but you all of a sudden you go, this is about to turn hard left or hard right. Something's about to go down here. And before I keep reading, uh, you, you just need to know today, um, if, if we were a church <laughs> that thought more strategically about how to do church, we would have just skipped right over this. We've had a ton of new people. Some of you are newer here today with us at church. I'm here to tell you today, if I do, if you leave here today happy and inspired, I've done a terrible job teaching this to you. You might leave today going, ugh, it's, it's tough. I'm just telling you right at the beginning here, this is one of those things that I don't even know why Luke put it in here. Luke's the guy who's putting all this. I mean, he could easily just skipped over this. Everything's going great and amazing. Why, why are you pointing that out? Um, if you have young children here today, you're going to have some questions that will probably come up, mom and dad. So you might want to, I mean, we have great children's classes. So if you have young, young ones in here, um, you're going to have some crazy conversations today. This is a not happily ever after story. This is a uh, spoiler alert. Here's the, the breaking news. Hypocrisy results in death at church. News at 11. Whoa, it doesn't end nice and neat and easy. Um, so you've been warned. <laughs> here we go. Some of you are going, what in the world is he talking about here? But there was a certain man named Ananias, who with his wife Sapphira sold some property. He brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. I think they wanted to go to Cabo for a vacation or something, and they go, we sold, let's let's take some. So we'll talk about that in a bit. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? And if you're Ananias, you're going, "Uh uh-oh. And think about it. You sold some property. You brought $150,000 to the church, whatever there. And the first thing the pastor says to you is, demon-possessed man, what are you doing here? Like, whoa, whoa. That's not the the greeting you. That's not the response you would expect when you're going to give a very significant gift here to a church. You lied to the Holy Spirit and you kept some of the money for yourself. 
The property was yours to sell or not as you wish. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. Give all of it away, part of it away. Just, it's yours to do whatever you want with. How could you do a thing like this? I would underline, highlight, whatever in your Bibles. You weren't lying to us, but to God. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Uh-oh. And here's the deal. I think, you know, Peter here calls him out. Somehow Peter knows that they've done this. God reveals it to him. Somehow, someway, he calls him out. He doesn't pronounce like, and therefore God's going to kill you here and curse be on you. I think Peter was like, whoa, wait a minute. Because he got called out for lying, for misrepresenting the truth. And you think, okay, well, maybe we got to get him some counseling. We got to get him in a men's group to deal with lying and integrity and those kind of things. He falls over dead right there in the church. I think Peter's as stunned as you and I are. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. Oh, you think, huh? (laughs) Then some young men got up, wrapped him in a sheet, and took him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in. They didn't have social media. They didn't have posting of anything back there. So three hours went by. News doesn't spread as fast back then as it does now. Not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, was this the price you and your husband received for your land? What he's saying here is, hey, Sapphira, maybe she didn't know anything about what Ananias did. Maybe it's all the dudes doing over here. Maybe the husband did all this and she had no idea. Or maybe the word has got out and she's heard some weird things happen here. And so she's going to come clean and go, he gives her a chance to get it right. He doesn't go, how could you think about doing this, you little... He gives him a chance, gives her a chance to respond. Yes, replied, that was the price. And Peter said, how... Could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who buried your husband are just outside the door, and they will carry you out too. Instantly, she fell to the floor and died. When the young men came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard what had happened. So Jesus, today, in my heart and soul, I don't want to blunt the force of this and soften up the sharp, soften up the sharp edges. And God, I also don't want to make the sharp edges sharper than they really need to be. So God, guide me. Guide us in this by your spirit. God, what we hear and how we hear this, it's a sobering morning that we need to take to heart. So just do what you need to do today. Amen. Over the years, uh, I grew up going to church. From the time I was, I think, six weeks old, I was going to church. And so over the years in, in elementary school, in middle school, high school, and even adult, things like this, I've heard this story a few times. People oftentimes have said that the problem here, have they mistakenly thought, the problem was that they held back, they didn't give it all to God. I can't believe they would would not give it all to God. And you know, that's not what's going on here. Peter said, look, sell it or not sell it and give all of it, give part of it, give some of it, do whatever you want to do. It's yours to do. Their problem was, we're going to look at it, was lying and pretending image management. Let's pretend and impress people with how cool and generous we are. We want to be just like Barney boy, Barnabas over here. Um, (laughs) 
we were talking about this this week a little bit. Um, and, and when I grew up going to church, from time to time, we, we would do Christian songs, kids' music songs. And they had one about this story. I, imagine now, imagine the soundtrack going through your head. I'm not, we don't have one. Imagine it's like a, little, like a kid's song. So imagine that as the background here. And now imagine Michael Scott is teaching your kids Sunday school. Some of you don't know the office, you'll appreciate this. Here's the lyrics, and these are actual, I didn't make these up. Back when I was a children, we sang these in Sunday school. I was a children when I was a child. Here we go. Ananias and Sapphira got together to conspire a plot to cheat the church and get ahead. They knew God's power but did not fear it, tried to cheat the Holy Spirit, lied to Simon Peter, and they both dropped dead. Children were taught these songs when I grew up, which might explain me a little bit. It's funny now, because you can go find, they have a song, and they do other stories in the Bible, and they have a chorus that goes, so God loves a cheerful giver, give them all you've got. Anyway, they, they do all that stuff. They, um, if you go Google and try to find that song today, God loves a cheerful giver, children's song, they have verses about Joni, about Peter, about Job, all that. They have edited out Ananias and Sapphira, thankfully. There is no veggie tales. Bob the cucumber or Larry, the, whoever they are, <laughs> falls over her dead. He, he calls them out. Now, now when I hear this story, if, if you're newer to church and newer to faith, your reaction will probably be if you, or if you will go back and go disentangle yourself from being a church person, having been to church a bunch of times now for years and years, and imagine what this feels like for someone who doesn't go to church or who's new to all this stuff. Because I tried to do that a few times in the last couple of weeks and I thought, you'll see the heading there in your note sheet. Come on, man. This seems like an overreaction to me by God. I mean, come on. They weren't committing adultery. They weren't, they weren't stealing money. They, they, weren't, they didn't kill anybody. They weren't breaking any of the, well, they broke the one of the commandments about lying. But on balance, they, they were doing a pretty good thing. And, and you think about it, okay, so it was a little white lie. They were still going to, a lot of people are going to be held with this money. So it just seemed odd to me. There's no happy ending here. Just a very sobering warning. Um... And a lot worse things are being done in Jerusalem that day. If God's going to kill some people for sin and evil, you're going to kill people that were generous to the church? Here's what I think is going on. I think, again, because we, we read the story all together, I don't believe that Ananias and Sapphira were concerned with pleasing God or helping people. They were concerned about helping their reputation their status, because Barnabas gets a new nickname and he gained all this status. We got some property. Let's do that too. And uh, what people think of us. And here's their twin sins. They, these, go, these go together. Pride and pretending, also known as hypocrisy. Pride and pretending. They wanted to be just as cool as Barnabas, get a new nickname, gain that kind of status, 
uh, amongst the, the early uh, believers that were gathering together. So they, they, they concoct this plot to sell it, keep, we don't know how much they kept, but they gave a lot. When you look at what the kind of thing, when, you, when we think of the things, if you make a list of like the top five things that God is, is evil and terrible and wrong in the world, um, my guess is for most of us, we'd come up with some things that are triggering issues in our culture right now today. My guess is pride would not be one of them, unless you've gone to church a bunch. Because, okay, so he's a little egotistical. He's got, he got a problem with pride a little bit. There's a verse in Proverbs chapter six, and when it says God puts his top seven things that are absolutely at the worst of the worst kinds of sin. You know what's number one on the list? Pride. That's a much bigger deal than we tend to think because in our culture, it's all about self-esteem and pride and be true to yourself and pump yourself up and don't anybody tell you you're not. It's all about, we do the opposite of humility. It's all about pride and how awesome and amazing we all are. And then pride almost always leads to pretending me because when you start to tell yourself you're awesome, you're amazing, and then you go over here and look at your life and go, hmm. So psh, psh, over here, I'm good. I'm fantastic. And guys, I saw this happen over and over and over again this year with a lot of you. People who I thought, man, their health, their health of their marriage, health of their finances, all that kind of stuff. And the number of meetings I have with people going, dude, th there's people out here that have done a really good job for years pretending that everything was fine. And okay. It's fascinating to me if you read through the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, I want you to turn back to Matthew. Keep something here in Acts. We're going to get back there in a second. Find Matthew 23. Um, there was a lot of terrible things going on in Jesus' day. There was prostitution. There was uh, kids being victimized. Roman soldiers. The cruelty of the state and all that. Jesus once in a while will kind of call those things out and go, hey, that's not right. Let's come on, get your act together. But he has a, we see Jesus get triggered with the kind of anger where it's that, he's like, like this, over hypocrisy. And he, in Matthew chapter 23, I mean, it's like two pages, like a whole page in your Bible of Jesus just laying it out like with a vengeance over uh, the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law. Now, if you've been in church for a while, even in our pop culture, this idea of you know uptight, legalistic Pharisees over there, and we think, thank God I'm not a Pharisee. You know who Pharisees are? People that come to church at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning. People that give to the church. People that serve in the church. People that have consistent, daily, quiet time, reading the Bible, praying. They, they're in a small group. Maybe even a men's discipleship group. Man, they, they lead things in the church. These are not what we have tended to now caricature as those uptight legalistic people at that church over there or down the street from me. This is me and you. We can become, uh, there's a great book out there called Accidental Pharisees where we can drift into this and not even know it, the best intention things. And Jesus uh, rails on them. We're not gonna read the whole chapter Find uh, verse 25, Matthew 23, verse 25. What sorrow awaits you? The idea here is not just what sorrow, like it's going to be a bum, you're going to be sorry. It's more the idea of what damnation awaits you. Awaits you. What, 
woe, it's, it's in the old school Bible, it says, woe to you, Pharisees. You teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too. And again, he's talking about this, you know, after dinner, right? You have the dishes. What if in the bowl you had spaghetti or goulash or soup or whatever it was, and it's in the sink, and all you did was just be carefully to make sure the outside was really clean. So when you stacked it in, in the display thing there with your glass cupboards, it looked good. Like, well, that'd be dumb, right? He says, no, the problem is you've got to get the inside clean. And the truth is, if you get the inside clean, almost by default, the outside's going to become clean. So he uses kind of that example, again, example of a disgusting after-dinner dish. And just to make sure that we really get it, he doubles down on it. Because now he moves from dirty dishes to maggot-infested corpses in graves. <laughs> what sorrow, verse 27, what sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawless. And we're not gonna keep reading that Jesus is not going to have it. For you and I today, if, if you're not yet a Christian today, we're glad you're here listening on this. The bulk of this message is probably not targeted at you today. The bulk of this is targeted at people who said, yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. I made a decision. I got baptized. I'm born again. Whatever label you want to put on that to describe your spiritual condition. This is Jesus coming after insiders. Not the outside world out there that's a mess right now. Us. Here's what hypocrisy looks like. I'm going to give you three of them that's caring more, number one, caring more what people think than what God thinks. Number two, caring more about perception than reality. Caring more about how people perceive me than who I really am. And then caring more about image than integrity. I'll give them to you again. Caring more what people think than what God thinks. Caring more about perception than reality and caring more about image uh, than integrity. Solomon, in the book of Proverbs, writes a verse that you ought to memorize. Proverbs 29, 25, he says this, said this way, fearing people is a dangerous trap. This idea of, of like, what do people think about me? What's going on here? Who, who's this person? What do they think about me over here? And over here with the people at work and the people in my neighborhood, the people at church, in my small group, in my class, whatever, what do people think of me? So that's a dangerous trap. It will lead you to compromising your faith. It will lead you sometimes to doing downright evil things. It will get you to the point where, like Peter says there two, two times in Acts chapter five, uh, five, how could you think of doing this? You ever been there and thought, how did I get here? What was I thinking Oftentimes, I was just pretending. I was trying to run around and please this person over here and please that person over here to look good in their eyes. Um, it also leads to just exhausting insecurity. L let me chat with you about that for a bit. Exhausting insecurity. Um, when we're pretending to be something that we're really not, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of work. When we're playing games... With God, that's what hypocrisy and pretending is. Now, for a second, look right at me. I don't want you to miss this today. 
Because if, we don't, if we're not careful with this, you will all walk out of here with lies and accusations from the enemy about what a terrible Christian you are because you struggle with sin. We are not talking today about an honest struggle with sin. We're not talking about the fact that, man, I screw up, I messed up, I clicked off some stuff, I did some impulsive stuff over here or there, or my, my language or my anger or whatever. I'm not talking about a struggle with it. Jesus is fine with people who struggle with stuff. It's when we go, I'm fine. And we pretend that everything's fine. We never come clean with our friends, with people in our family, with anybody we know. I was talking to somebody before church today who said, man, right now there's a, they're not at our church, but a different church thing. They don't go here. They live far away. I'm just talking about, man, all this stuff came up and for years he just pretended. Like everything was fine. All of a sudden all this stuff comes bubbling out of here. It's that game. So we're not talking about an honest struggle with sin. That's struggle with it. It's the pretending that there's no struggle, pretending that you're just fine. I don't need counseling. I'm not going to join a small group. That's dumb. All I'm going to do is make you talk about stuff and cry. Some of you ought to do that. For just a moment, ladies, mute yourself. Dudes, men, some of you ought to be getting in those. Because all too often in the church, it's all about, well, the ladies go do all that soft relationship kind of stuff. And the dudes sit out there and are binge watching Netflix or clicking around on porn and drinking and stuff like that. Guys, it's time. In a month, we start small group signups. Men, you ought to be the one leading out on this, not just coming along because the wife wants me to do it. Back to this. Um, one of the signs of hypocrisy is when, when we will point out how messed up people out there are, out there are and how, how much they need to change and how they need to grow. You know why you do that? Because... It's what the Pharisee did when he came to church. Jesus talks about it, it, it several times in, the, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There was a guy, who Pharisee, came to church, looked over there and go, thank you, God, I'm not like that guy over there. See, as soon as you do that, you have to pay attention to your stuff because you're focused on somebody else. If you're not quite offended yet enough or not sure about our church yet enough, let me just push it all the way. The problem with your life right now is not who sits in the White House, it's who sits in your house. It's the dude or girl, whoever sits, looks back at you in the mirror every morning. And if you want your life to change, work 10 times as hard and get 10 times as about your own life as you do about the ridiculous politicians in Washington or the state of California. And then I think there's also like... Um, <laughs> chatting with a guy on Thursday about this situational Christianity syndrome SCS this is uh, the word hypocrite is not a religious word it comes from uh, the Greek language it's the idea back then when they had actors in a, in, a, in a play or something like that they wouldn't have 50 actors they would have 5 or 10 actors and when a person was coming on stage to play a certain part they would put a mask on and they would play that part, and then they changed. They would honestly sometimes just mask down here and this mask up here, and now they're a different person. What hypocrite actually literally means is a mask wearer. It's changing my identity, and I'm just telling you, I, <laughs> we have students in here today. Guys, I'm glad you're here, part of our church. You're sitting with moms or dads or just you know, with, with your friends and stuff today. I was talking to some kids the other day about this, and they said it's weird my dad, when he's here at church, 
Man, he looks like he's all on fire, rock star, forgot all that. You should see how he talks to my mom at home. And then in the workplace and what's going on in the workplace and the kind of shenanigans going on over there, situational Christianity. Um, and I'm telling you today, guys, here, I'm not just here to point this out as something that's wrong to do. I'm telling you, it's exhausting. Dancing around, performing over here for this, what do they think of me? And be this person over here and then be this person over here and then be this person over here. There's a guy, a famous author from two or 300 years ago named Nathaniel Hawthorne, wrote a book called The Scarlet Letter. It's been made into movies and stuff like that. He has a great quote about this. It'll be up here on the screen. It says this, no man or woman for any considerable period can wear one face to himself and another to the multitude without finally getting bewildered as to which may be true. I'm just telling you guys, it's just so much better, so much better to, to quit playing that game. That's a bit of what it looks like. So we've, we've diagnosed a big problem here. Ananias and Cyrus' problem, sometimes our problem here, especially in westernized Christianity where everything's about image and what we look like and smell like and feel like to everybody, the the audiences around us that are evaluating us. The antidote to this disease of pretending and hypocrisy is, you'll see it there, write it down, it's fear God. Look back here in Acts. Twice it tells us in Acts chapter five, once, once in verse five and once in verse 11, it says they were terrified and great fear gripped the entire church and the people who heard about it. Now, when we talk about fearing God, some people think, well, fearing God, that's kind of intense, isn't it? Aren't we like the age of grace and Jesus died on the cross and it's all about just love and perfect love casts out fear? And people sometimes think, well, that, you know, the Bible talks about fearing God, but that's like Old Testament God. And then God got some therapy. He got to a counselor, not so angry anymore. I want to tell you right now, the love and the grace and mercy of God is there from chapter one of Genesis all the way through Revelation and so is the wrath and the fear and judgment of God. It's a consistent theme all the way through. Proverbs 1.7 says it this way, the fear of the Lord is the foundation of your whole life. The fear of God. Um, Sam Tate, who's on our team here, was talking about this this week when we were brainstorming this. Uh, uh, Psalm uh, 34.11 says, hey children, come here, let me teach you what it means to fear God. What a gift that is to learn, to understand what it means to fear God. Isaiah 57, 11 says it this way, Whom have you so dreaded and feared that you have not feared me? Don't miss this, guys. You fear someone or something in your life. And whoever you fear, that someone or something will drive every decision you make at some level. Fearing God People think, well, fear God, am I terrified of God? Because some of you go, man, I was terrified of my dad. He's going to abuse me or hurt me. No, no, we're not talking about that. Here's what fearing God is. I think it's one of the best definitions I've ever heard. Write this down. It's in the box there on the note sheet. It's, I care more what God thinks than what everyone else thinks combined. What this means is, don't miss this. It means I live, I, this won't come up on the screen right now. It means I live, I, I live, I care more about what God thinks about me and my decisions and who I am than what everybody else thinks at church, at school, in the workplace, in the neighborhood, more what God thinks than what 
everybody else thinks all put together. What that means is, there's an uh, artist that years ago did an album called With Worship Means We Live for an Audience of One. You know what happens when you do that, when you live for an audience of one? All of a sudden you go, it's not always easy to be a Christian, but I'm telling you, you are not hopping around like a trained little monkey. It's exhausting to do it. That's why Jesus said, I come to give you life and life to the full. And here's the thing. Last, I didn't have this in the message last night. It came to me in the worship time at the end of the message last night, but you guys get it right in the, in the message today. When you live for an audience of one, all you need is the approval of one. Doesn't matter what my kids think of me right now, or my wife, or my spouse, or... Now look at me for a second. Some of you are going to hear this and go, that's right, I don't care what she thinks about me tomorrow. Do what I want. <laughs> Sheesh. Don't, don't miss the point here, because caring what God thinks means he tells me to love and serve and respect and lay down my life and obey and all that stuff. So... Let's not get silly and ridiculous with that. Go too far with it. Um, and just in case you're wondering, well, all those verses you quote about fearing God are all from the Old Testament. Uh, flip over to, in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. If you get to Revelation, you've gone too far. We go through all kinds of little books here. Acts, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and then there's Thessalonians and Timothy and Titus and Philemon. And then we eventually get to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10. Look at verse 26. Hebrews 10, 26. Dear friends, and already you know, uh-oh. Dear friends, he's setting us up. If we, key word here, deliberately continue sinning after we have received knowledge of the truth, there is no longer any sacrifice that will cover these sins. There is only the terrible expectation of God's judgment and the raging fire that will consume his enemies. For anyone who refused to obey the law of Moses was put to death without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Just think how much worse the punishment will be for those who have trampled on the Son of God and have treated the blood of the covenant which made us holy as if it were common and unholy and have insulted and disdained the Holy Spirit who brings God's mercy to us. For we know the one who said, I will take revenge, I will pay them back. And he also said, the Lord will judge, catch it here, not the world out there, his own people. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I think once in a while, God inspires the writers of scriptures to put verses in there like that. Inspires Luke to, hey, keep this story in here. Because if we're not careful, the church can just become all about fun, exciting music and fun, exciting, inspirational stuff. And man, like amazing parties on Friday night. All that, there's nothing wrong with those, all that stuff. But that's all it is. Look, guys. The Mormons and the Buddhists and the Jehovah's Witnesses can do all that stuff too. At some point, God's going to go, I want you to understand who you're dealing with here. Then I'm not your homeboy. Hmm. Here's the big question today. I'm not going to explain a lot more of these verses. It might be good to go home and read those and reread those again for some of us that might be playing that game. But um, I wonder, 
<laughs> what if God showed up here at Crosspoint today in the way he showed up there with Ananias and Sapphira? <laughs> and everybody who's playing games with God died at church. I'm telling you this week, I struggle. I've all week long going, dude, I, I don't want to be the like, news at 11. Pastor killed at church because preaching on hypocrisy and God exposed him. <laughs> I'm telling you, it was sobering to think about. Now, here's the crazy thing. This is one time this happens. The miracle is it doesn't happen all the time. It does happen once in a while, and I think God does this to say, look, I'm, I want to be very clear with you. I want you to understand who you're dealing with here. And I think, guys, overall... As a church, as a, as a church family and community here, for those of you that are newer here, uh, just to let you know kind of how we roll here, one of the things we say here all the time is it's okay not to be okay. I think overall we do a fairly good job, most of us, with being authentic and being real. We don't do a whole lot of pretending around here, and yet sometimes we, we can get almost pharisaical about not being a Pharisee. Thank God we're not like that. We don't really pay attention to the stuff that's going on in our heart and our soul. And it's so easy to go judge those legalistic, tightly wound people that don't drink and don't smoke and don't go to wineries and don't, and they wear skirts down to their ankles and all. We can point all that stuff out and God goes, stop that. You got enough stuff that you have to deal with. And I love it too. Back here in Acts chapter four, flip back there, I want you to see this. Because as, as tricky as this kind of stuff is, I actually think that the world that we live in is looking for something like, dang. That's not just about what marketing on a great website could do and what a great worship experience, what a great band, a great sound system could do. There is something that goes beyond any of that stuff here. Look what happens here. In Acts chapter 5, it says, you know, great fear grip the entire church. Look at down in verse 13. It says that all the believers start to join together in the temple and all that. Verse 13, no one else dared to join them. <laughs> yeah, because even though all the people had high regard for them, yet more and more people believed and were brought to the Lord. Crowds of men and women. Flip over to Acts chapter uh, 19. Paul is in the city of Ephesus. A guy who goes out and starts a lot of churches. He's over in Ephesus. And there's these guys, they're called the they're sons of a Jewish priest, they're called the seven sons of Sceva. And they heard about this Jesus thing, saw the power that was there, so they started going around, creating their own little brand and stuff, and started casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And the demon in this one dude says, hey, I know who Jesus is, I know who Paul is, who are you? And it says that demon came out and beat those guys up so bad they ran away naked. Beat them so bad it ripped the, ripped the clothes off of them. Verse 17, the story of what happened spread quickly all through Ephesus. Yeah, you think? To Jews and Greeks alike, a solemn fear descended on the city. Look at this. And the name of the Lord Jesus was greatly honored. I'm telling you, it, it, we want to be a kind of church that says, look, we're going to love God. And we're talking about the love and the grace and the mercy of God. But we're going to deal with like, this is God we're dealing with here. There is a, a sense of, this goes beyond just thinking God's awesome Honoring God, respecting God. There is a solemn sense of, there's a great psalm, Psalm chapter two, where it says, rejoice with trembling. 
joy in our hearts with a, a sober-mindedness about this, which means then we won't play games with God. And I know that here in, in our church, and I talk to a lot of you, and you'll see it all over websites, Christian websites and stuff, talking about, man, America needs to come back to God, and God needs to kind of rain down judgment and fire and bring revival back to our land and clean out all the wicked people and get things started again. I want to tell you right now, you know when God does that, you know what, who goes first? Us. First Peter, Peter tells the church, he says, judgment starts in the house of God. When God comes to judge the world, he's coming to the church first. And if you study this in, in history, I'm reading a couple books right now on this, and you can study this in human history uh, with churches where they've been just in awful, terrible, nasty places. You know how revival started? Not in the people out there getting right with God. Got, some things happened in the church. The, people, the church got right with God. There was a solemn fear, like we've been playing games with God. We've been playing this hypocritical, mask-wearing kind of game with God, and we're done with it. And that's how revival broke out. That's how it, it moved outside of the church and started impacting the community around them because all of a sudden, the people in the church were telling the world to take God seriously actually started doing that themselves. Every week here at Crosspoint, we give you guys a chance to come and receive communion. It's a chance to, the communion elements are bread and juice, symbolizing the body and the blood of Jesus. In the book of 1 Corinthians, you can turn there if you want, or you can just let me read it to you. 1 Corinthians 11. Paul is calling out the church in Corinth, because when they did communion back then, they didn't just have little wafers and stuff in a corner of a room. They, they called them like love feasts, and not like the love feasts of the 60s here in America. Um, like love of Jesus. And they would have like the whole thing and they would do communion as part of that. And he's calling them out because they're out of control. They're excluding people from there who couldn't bring like enough like legit dishes here to the big massive amazing buffet line. Or <laughs> they were drinking wine and getting drunk at communion. And Paul goes, what are you doing? Reminds them, hey, I'm telling you, here, here's how communion started. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and wine at the Passover meal and interrupted the whole thing and said, this is my body and this is my blood. Eat and drink this all the time to remember me. Verse 27. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Let's stop there for just a second. Over the years, some of you have heard that. Unworthily, it means, well, if you... If you've sinned this week, you've had a bad week this week, if you've messed up, screwed up this week, you've been all like, like not just like struggled with sin, but you've really, you can't come and receive communion. That's not what this verse is saying. The truth is, all of us come to the communion table unworthy. We come to the communion table with hands like this that says, nothing I did this week qualifies me to receive this, no matter how good I was. How amazing I was a mom or a dad, how much I read my Bible, how much money I gave to the church, whatever I did, nothing qualifies me to receive grace and nothing disqualifies me from this. I come with empty hands. Because what Jesus did on the cross 2,000 years ago is what qualifies me. Not one religious, spiritual good thing I've ever done. And that's what we celebrate in communion. 
That's why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you're eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That's why many of you are weak and sick, and some of you even died. People dying at church and stuff like that because of doing communion in a weird way. And I think, I'm not sure exactly how this all applies to us today, but I think when it comes to communion, this is not, for those of you that grew up in very, very liturgical backgrounds, sometimes what happened was all the things you did in the church was just like, Step one, step two, step three. Not a thought, not a sense of recognition of anything that was going on there. You just take the bread, take the juice, move on. I got some sinning to do, you know? Don't, don't, don't do it that way. We also do it as like, okay, this religious ritual of actually eating bread and drinking juice makes me right with God. See, what communion is and what baptism is, is a, I'm honoring this as the thing that defines my life, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Baptism is all about that. Under the water, dying to myself, out of the water, raised to new life. Communion is all about remembering the body and the blood of Jesus that was given for me. And so I tell you today, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, not yet a Christian, when we, people are gonna get up here in a few minutes. I'm gonna bring the band up right now. The band's gonna play some songs, we're gonna sing some, sing some of these songs together. Um, people will get up and move around and come to these communion stations in the four corners of the room. If you're not yet a Christian today, um, don't, you, you, don't just come there and do that little religious ritual because it hasn't happened for you yet. You, you haven't come to that place of saying, I believe this and I accept this and receive this for myself. So part of that is just let that go by. Nobody's going to judge you and evaluate you and all that kind of stuff. And also tell you, if you're not a Christian today, become a Christian today. What all becoming a Christian means is I believe that what Jesus did on the cross 2,000 years ago counts for me today. will forgive all my sin, past, present, and future. He'll move into my life and change me from the inside out by his spirit, not by a bunch of religious codes and rules and rituals. You, in faith, just say, I believe that. I don't get it all yet, but I believe that. Then you come to that communion table today and receive, publicly recognize and receive the body and the blood of Jesus, say, I've received this for myself. There's probably more to say about that, but I think I'm done. We're gonna pray, and you're gonna sing. Our, our prayer team is at the back of the house today. If you need prayer for anything today, maybe it's a sense of, you know what? I don't need to know. You know, I'm not gonna share all the gory details, but I need to just go. I've been playing games, and I'm exhausted. I'm frustrated. I'm tired of it. Let them just pray for you back there. People will be getting them moving around. It, it's, it's your private time with them. Do that. Maybe even take some time today where you're sitting here as you're sitting here. I've carried a burden for too long on my own. I'm laying it down. There's songs we're gonna to sing today that talk about this idea. I'm just done with the games. I'm running back to the Father. So Jesus, today, as we remember you, help us, God, by your Spirit, Help us move to a place of fearing you, not just respecting you or honoring you, but fearing you. And the beautiful kind of paradox of that, of, of loving you as well. And God, by your Holy Spirit now today in these next few minutes, as we sing, as we come to tables of communion, as we pray, 
by your spirit, do whatever it is that you need to do in every single person's heart right here.